pictures. And so one thing that we're doing as we get into this series uh, is we are having someone uh, read the passage who uh, will then read it before the person preaches today. And so today, uh, Anna Williams is going to come up right now and read from the book of Proverbs chapter 3. If you have a Bible or an app, go ahead and open it up. Thank you. Hi, my name is Anna, and I have the privilege of serving on the Reality Youth Ministry team. And today's scripture passage is from the book of Proverbs, chapter 3, verse 1 through 8. My son, do not forget my teaching, but keep my commands in your heart, for they will prolong your life many years and bring you peace and prosperity. Let love and faithfulness never leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Then you will win favor and a good name in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways submit to him and he will make your paths straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. This will bring health to your body and nourishment to your bones. This is God's word. Well, thank you, Hannah. Let's pray together this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you to every person in this room, those who are joining us online or sitting outside. They matter to you. You are aware of and you are concerned with all that is going on in our lives. We are inviting your Holy Spirit to speak to us. Where we need to be challenged or corrected, would we receive it? Where we need encouragement and comfort, would you bring it? We ask together that you would make us wise men and women. Open our hearts to your word. And for anyone here who does not yet know you, we pray that today they would know and understand all that you've done for them in Jesus. That they would believe on his name and find and know salvation. For we pray these things together in his name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. Well, two teachers were once applying for the same position at a local high school. One teacher had been teaching for a total of eight years. And the second applicant was a teacher who had been teaching for 20 years. Naturally, as you can imagine, most people would expect that the teacher with the 20 years of experience would be a shoo-in for the job. But when the decision was made, it was actually the person with eight years of teaching experience who was chosen. The teacher who did not get the job with the 20 years of experience complained bitterly. I have 20 years of her of experience to her eight years, he cried. I am vastly more qualified. But the school replied, yes. But whereas you have 20 years of experience, she has eight years of wisdom. It's an interesting story because we often confuse experience for wisdom. But simply experiencing life does not automatically make you wise. Experiencing the passage of time does not actually make you wise. Let's be honest this morning. Some of us have experienced a lot of things, but depending on the way that we responded to it, we could grow bitter from our experience. We can become resentful because of our experience. We can even become foolish because of our experience. If you take away the learning, you are only left with an experience. And if we're honest, without the growth, experience will not automatically help us. It reminds me of the phrase that the great writer Oscar Wilde humorously said, experience is usually the name everyone gives to their mistakes. I could have a lot of experience, but maybe I haven't responded to all those experiences well. 
Wisdom is not just about experience. It's about what you learn through the experience. It's about how you grow through the experience that enables you and I to become wise. So the question we need to ask this morning is, how does experience turn into wisdom? Or more than that, how can we gain godly wisdom as we go through the experiences of life? How does biblical wisdom guide us in this matter? If you're not yet a Christian, you need to ask this morning, well, what is biblical wisdom? And why is it so absolutely essential that I gain it? And how can it become true for me? And if you are a Christian, when we look around at all of the situations and circumstances that, that we are in, we need to be honest and declare that we are desperate in need of wisdom. If we look at everything that's going on in the world around us, but even in our own lives, off the many conversations that I have, the prayer requests that I know I get, wisdom is absolutely key if we are to live distinct lives in this cultural moment. Proverbs chapter 3 begins to lay out several ways that you and I can become wise. And there are great benefits to godly wisdom. Most of these were written by the great King Solomon who began to rule in ancient Israel around 970 BC. And we learn from his introduction in chapter 1 that anyone can become wise. Anyone. It's not a matter of intellectual ability. It's a matter of willingness. Anyone can become wise. But the question we're asking today is, how can I become wise? Because let me tell you something, friends. You will never drift into wisdom. You will never accidentally become wise. You don't just wake up one morning and your roommate or your spouse is like, oh my goodness, you're wise. Like, that's amazing. I don't know. I went to the vitamin shop and I like, I took these things and now I'm just, I'm just wise. You'll never drift into it. It will not happen accidentally. There are choices to be made truths to know and to value. And they begin to be laid out here in Proverbs chapter 3. And they are not only truths you need to know, but truths you need to apply. We'll put them out under four headings, four ways to become wise. The first laid out here is this. You need to find wise people. If you want to become wise, you need to be around wise people. Throughout the beginning of this book, but also through its entirety, you will see time and again the writing of a parent to a child as it opens in chapter 3, verse 1. My son, do not forget my teaching. In ancient Hebrew culture, without the institutions like schools that many of us are familiar with, your primary source of learning was found in relationships. And you'll notice as we study this book that so much of the wisdom that comes down to us comes in the context of relationships passed from one person to another. It could be a parent to a child. It could also be a friend to another friend. The key to remember is this. Wisdom is a community project. Or to put it another way, you will never find wisdom by yourself. You will never become wise completely and entirely on your own. Which is an interesting thought because there are many people that I've known, particularly in my time when I was pastoring in Los Angeles, where some of the people I knew thought they came to a season or stage of life where like, you know what, I've been living so foolishly, I'm gonna seek wisdom. So what I've done is I've booked an eight-year backpacking tour all by myself so that I can become wise. And I'm like, I don't think that's a good thing. <laughs> You're not gonna automatically become wise if you just like go away by yourself. Wisdom is a community project. We were created for relationship and we gain wisdom within relationships. You will never find wisdom by yourself. Yes, you can get information in a class, but you get wisdom in community. 
And in our digital age, where we're so used to like, our go-to for anything is Google, let's be honest. We learn very quickly that just getting information doesn't always make you wise. I mean, ask anyone who's had a, like a bump on their knee and then they search like WebMD for two minutes and act as if they went to like four years of university to become a doctor. And you're like, wow, you spent five minutes. I see some of you like pointing at each other. Like, That's what you do. Like I have, a, I have a rash on the left side of my kneecap and like looking it up, you know, for like two minutes and all of a sudden you're an expert. Just the availability of information alone will not make you wise. You need a community. Now, there are two alternatives to community that the book of Proverbs talks about, and both of them are deadly. One alternative to finding wisdom in community is to isolate yourself. I'm not talking about solitude. Solitude are strategic times you take alone to, to seek God, to recharge for community. Isolation is cutting yourself off from community, keeping everyone at arm's length. To do that is to become foolish. And it is so easy for us to fall into this. And many of you are making decisions right now that further isolate yourself from community. We begin to say, I don't need anyone. I don't need your advice. But we actually do need other people in our lives. We do. In fact, many times we don't realize how badly we need other people's perspectives in our lives. And let me give you one reason for that. The foolishness that is most likely to destroy you is the foolishness you are least likely to notice. We all have our blind spots. Let's admit that. We all have our blind spots. Things that, that do not come to our attention or we just, we don't really want to pay attention to it and so we just kind of dismiss it. Those are the things we need to watch out for. It's one of the reasons why Jesus and many of his teachings in the Gospels uses the phrase, watch out. He says, watch out because of greed. It's not that people aren't aware of the danger of greed, but they need warnings. They need warnings. The foolishness that is most likely to destroy you is the foolishness you are least likely to notice on your own. You need other people. I know this is so true in my life. There are many times where little patterns or things that I'm saying that I wasn't really noticing. I was like, oh, it's no big deal. Only to have, this has happened on many occasions, only to have, whether it's my, my spouse or, or someone else in our church come alongside and say, Tim, you've been doing these things. You've been saying these things and it's not good. And nobody likes to hear that at first, but it's so important that I do. The sin that is most likely to destroy you is the sin you are least likely to notice. The book of Proverbs in chapter 18 says, a man who isolates himself seeks his own desire and rages against all wise counsel. That's one alternative to finding wise people. The other is to surround yourself with fools. <laughs> Some of you are like, oh, I don't know, I isolate myself. I just find permission givers and pure enablers in my life to give me permission to do whatever I want. So some of you are like, oh, I've got plenty of people in my life. Okay, are they wise? Or are they fools? <laughs> Let's be real. There are times in our lives where we allow people in because we know that they're going to affirm and approve every decision we make, even if it's ridiculous and stupid. Can we talk about this? <laughs> like, oh, I just want to blow all my money. And like your friends are like, yeah, go off, king. Go off, queen. You deserve this. You're like, that's right. I deserve this. Let's bring it down to earth. Marriage and family are hard. Like, they don't appreciate me as much as they should. I'm going to leave. And I'm only going to tell this to people I know will already affirm and approve and enable my decision. Like, yeah, you deserve better. You should leave. It's foolishness. So one deadly alternative is to isolate yourself. Some of us, we, we live our lives like we're a castle and like people can only come to the moat. And only with the secret password or if they've gone through this like list of, you know, prerequisites, you're like, I will lower the drawbridge and give you five minutes with yours truly. It's 
unwise, it's foolish. The other alternative is we surround ourselves with fools. Are you searching out wise people? Proverbs 13 verse 20 says, walk with the wise and you will become wise. For a companion of fools suffers harm. We need to think about those who we're spending time with. This doesn't mean that you avoid all contact with all people in the world who are not wise. We all have our jobs. We live in certain places, of course. What this means is you should not give a commanding influence to those who are foolish. You should not give a commanding influence to those who are walking down a destructive path and who will lead you down a destructive path. So in light of that, who are you surrounding yourself with? Who are you going to for advice? Are you, this is one of the reasons, by the way, why we push community groups so much. Bible studies, serving on Sundays, it's getting you in the, the church ecosystem, if you will, so that you can surround yourself with, with people who are also reading scripture and hopefully can help you become wise. It's one of the ways that you grow. It, getting in community, getting involved in the life of the church is one of the ways that you can find wisdom. So if you're isolating yourselves, this is a call to you to, to Get into community. Open yourself up to relationships of men and women who are godly and wise. And ask yourself these questions about your existing relationships. Am I giving other people permission to point out my foolishness? That's a hard one. Am I giving permission to other people to point out my foolishness? Am I also giving them permission to give me encouragement? When I need it, we need both. Or are we building a fortress? See, if we're alone, we are easy prey. Some of you are like nomad, lone wolf, whatever. It's foolishness. Alone, separated from wise community, you are easy prey and an easy target for both the enemy, the evils of the world, and also the evils within your own heart. It's foolishness. Find wise people. But that's not the only way that you become wise. We need wise people in our lives. We need to seek that. It's the discipline of community, allowing other people to see and to speak into our lives. It's one of the best ways to become wise. We encourage you to get into community here within the church. But it's not the only way to become wise. Secondly, you not only need to find wise people, you need to remember wise words. And there are no wiser words than the words found in Scripture. You see, in that culture, the, the, the father would often have the, the responsibility of teaching the commandments of God, teaching the, the law of God to the children. Why? Because in the Word of God, we find the will of God. We know how to live because of what God has revealed. And so it says in verse 1 and 2, My son, do not forget my teaching. But keep my commands in your heart, for they will prolong your life many years and bring you prosperity. All truly wise words are anchored in the truths and commands of Scripture. And notice he uses that word, commands, like here's how you ought to live. Knowing these commands is actually a condition for receiving God's guidance. We need to know the truth. In the word of God, his will is made known. And that's why the author says at the end of verse one, don't forget my teaching, but keep my commands, that which I'm teaching you from the law of God, in your heart. Don't forget. Do not forget the, the teachings. Do not forget the truths. You need to remember these wise words. See, it's one thing to hear the word of God, but it's another thing to receive it and to remember it. And if you're like me, oftentimes, the difference between remembering and forgetting is quite often the difference between what's important and what's unimportant. Right? I tend to remember, not always, but I tend to remember things that are important to me. 
Like when my sports team that I follow wholeheartedly to my demise at times, it's like I know when they're playing. I know when the game, my, my body clock is like locked into it. I could be like out with my family at an event and like, oh, they're playing. I, like my heart just tell like, ah, oh. why? Because it's like, sadly, a, you know, it's part of my life. <laughs> but oftentimes I forget to take out the trash specifically the bins to the curb so that it can be received by the city and actually taken away. Because it's not always, in, I'm just like, oh, whatever, it'll take care of itself until you, you miss trash day and you're like, no. So one of the ways in which we remember, we're not talking about intellectual ability here, friends. We're talking about what is important. So one of the ways that we begin to remember the word of God, remember scripture, begins by understanding how vital it is. How absolutely essential knowing the word of God is for my life. So important, you'll see metaphors used throughout Proverbs, but also throughout the Bible, of how important it is to know the truth, know the commands, know these words of, of wisdom. One of the metaphors used is food. And Reading and studying God's word is likened unto preparing and eating food. You need it to live. You rarely forget to eat. Maybe from time to time, but rarely. So one of the ways to remember the wisdom of the Bible is to be convinced of its importance. Let me just give you a few greatest hints to show you how absolutely essential this is to your life. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 4 says, Then he taught me and said to me, Take hold of my words with all of your heart. Keep my commands, and you will live. Proverbs 10, verse 8. The wise in heart, what do they do? They accept commands. But a chattering fool comes to ruin. Proverbs chapter 7, verse 2. Keep my words and live. Keep my teachings as you would your own eye. I love that. And of course, we remember as we move into the New Testament, the words of Jesus himself when he was facing the devil in the desert in a moment of temptation. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's how vital it is to us, friends. It, it nourishes us in, in our souls in the same way that, that food is so important. Like if, even if you don't feel that hungry in, in the moment and you've got physical work that you have to do that day, you know it's important to get that fuel in your body. I'm not saying that every one of us is going to feel like reading the Bible in the morning. I'll be honest, many mornings I read up and I'm not like, oh, can't wait to get into the Word of God. Sometimes... But not all the time. Sometimes I'm like, coffee, number one priority. And if the word of God makes it in there, great. That's how I feel at times. But then I remember, I'm like, no, this is so important. It's more necessary than my daily food. And then as I begin to open up the word of God and I hear it, I'm like, yes, yes. This is what I need to hear as I approach my day. Remember its importance. Know its importance. Be convinced of the importance of the wise words of God given to you in the Bible. And then practically prioritize it. Look, Bible reading plans or like doing your devotion, it's not some little like religious box you have to check off. Like, I'm a good Christian because I read my five-minute Devo this morning. Like, this is your daily food. I remember when I was a new Christian, there's this devotional series uh, still around today. They publish them, these little books, and they're called our daily bread. Some of you are like, yes, daily bread. And I love that because it does what it says on the cover. <laughs> it's a way, day by day, scripture reading plan that teaches you the word of God. And it's called daily bread because that's how we should view it. Friends, be convinced of the importance. You not only need to find wise people, you need to remember wise words. And there are no wiser words than the word of God. Find time. More than that, make time. Set reminders. Spend time dwelling on passages. Pray over them. Talk about them. Another thing that we do in our church life, in our community groups, we talk about it. But we all know that it's one thing to just hear the word of God. 
but it's another thing to do it. And that leads to the third point. You not only need, if you want to become wise, you need to find wise people. Get around people who are wise and godly. You need to remember wise words. You need to study and read the word of God. But thirdly, you need to embrace wise practices. With powerful imagery here, Proverbs 3 describes the importance of not only hearing, but putting into practice what you've learned and what you've heard. Notice the language in verses 3 and 4. Let love and faithfulness never leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Then you will win favor and a good name in the sight of God and man. What is he talking about there? Well, notice in verse 3, love and faithfulness, those are not words that have to do with the intellect. Those are words that have to do with your lifestyle. According to the Bible, to live faithfully is that you're living a pattern of life The way that you view people, the way that you treat people, the words that you use, faithfulness has to do with your character. It has to do with how you are actually living. And he reinforces that truth with a wonderful metaphor when he says in verse 3, bind them around your neck. You read that and you're like, what on earth is he talking about? He's using the imagery of jewelry to make a point. You're like, great. What's the point? (laughs) The point is this, why do you put on jewelry? To take it out into public, right? If you choose an outfit, if you give thought to to choose what you're going to wear, choose what you're going to, you know, put on, it's because you're taking it out into public. When he says, bind it around your neck, take these truths, bind them around your neck, he's saying, in the same way that you would put on a piece of jewelry and take it out into public, I want you to take what you're learning, what you know, what you've heard, and take it out into the public square. Take it out into your relationships. Take it out into your marriage with your children, to your workplace. Take it out into public. Bind them around your neck in the same way that you give attention to what you're going to wear. Some of you are like, no, not really. I just smell clean, good. Whatever. Even the fact that you gave that much attention is a good thing. It's always helpful to, to do that. You gave thought to it in the same way that you're like, okay, what I've learned, I now need to take this out into public. I need to take this into my life. Love and faithfulness. The implications of what we learn need to be taken into the public square. See, amen. Wisdom is incomplete if we only commit it to memory but not practice. And I think a lot of people in the church need to hear this today. Because many people think it's enough just to hear the word and memorize it. Like, I've got 38 chapters of the Bible memorized. Awesome. Are you doing anything? Are you living it? And to be honest, one of the biggest criticisms against the church today is hypocrisy by the watching world. It's the follow what I say, not what I do. And so... Though some of that criticism might be unfair, some of it is more than fair. We have all these things committed to memory, but not to practice. Take what you've learned. Bind it around your neck. See, the book of Proverbs is going to lay down all kinds of best practices. Here's what you should do with your money. Here's what you should do, you know, with your relationships. Here's how you should view your family. Here's how to deal with and steward your emotions. It's not just about knowing them. It's actually committing to them. And here's the thing. If you practice them, the more you do that, the more you'll remember them. The more you think about it and then put it into practice, the more it will reinforce your memory. But the reverse is also true. If you don't practice it, you are less likely to remember it. It'll just go away. And that's the idea, memory is the idea of that phrase, write them on the tablet of your heart. This image is meant to emphasize the work of memory. Because of course, we remember what we learn best as we do it. Take the truth into daily life. It also reminds us that our hearts, like a tablet of clay, which is what the author's envisioning then, our hearts are moldable. They are changeable. They can be influenced. And so it is so important what you're allowing in 
to your heart. More on that next week. But what we note here is that part of becoming wise is not only hearing the truth, but putting it into practice. When you look at the followers of Jesus in the gospel accounts, the disciples, oftentimes you find Jesus correcting them. And one of the most common corrections given from Jesus to the disciples is their failure to apply what is true to the situations that are new. So for example, Jesus will teach them something and then they'll go out into a situation and the disciples don't apply what they learned into that situation and therefore they don't act rightly. They don't live rightly. And Jesus says, don't you remember what I heard? Don't you remember what I said? It's an issue of memory. We need to learn Discipline ourselves in that and then put it into practice. So much of scripture is about remembering truth by practicing it. Let me give you a few examples. Hebrews chapter 5. The author is writing to a, a church, in particular a group of Christians, who should be so much more mature than they are now, but something has happened. And so the author has said, in fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Solid food is for the mature. And here's the key. Who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. I want you to note those two words. Constant use. The reason these men and women were not advancing, growing, or maturing is not because they didn't have the right information. It's because they weren't constantly using what they had learned. They weren't applying. They weren't putting it into practice. And so it's almost like they had to go back to step one. Like, hey, start putting this into practice. We need reminding. Listen, you will never outgrow your need to be reminded. If you're like me, you don't like to be reminded. Something about my pride, my ego doesn't like to be reminded of something I already know. Right, Tim, can you take out the trash? Yeah, I know, I got it, I got it, all right? Or people are like, hey, Tim, you need to remember, you know, this, this verse in Proverbs. I'm like, really? I'm a professional Bible teacher, all right? Yeah, I know the verse. You want to know what it means in Hebrew? Come at me. <laughs> that's, that's my pride, that's my ego, like, to remind me. But wise people are always like, yes, I know that, but I need to hear it again. That's a wise person. I, I would endeavor to, hopefully someday, <laughs> I endeavor to say, yes, I know that, but I need to hear it again. But don't just listen to me. Listen to the Apostle Peter, who in his advanced years as a leader in the church said this when he wrote his second letter to the church. He said, so I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have. I think it's right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body. And I will make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. Peter's like, listen, I know you know this. I'm going to remind you again. And I'm going to remind you again. And I'm going to do this until I die. And even after I die, I'm going to set on your like calendar alerts all these things so that you're reminded even after my death. <laughs> a year later, it's like, Peter's reminding you of the truth of God. <laughs> He's like, I'm going to ensure even after my departure that you still remember. You become wise as you remember wise words and embrace wise practices. It's an ongoing thing. That's why wisdom is often referred to as a path not a door. Wisdom is often referred to as a path, not a door. And here's the difference. Opening a door is usually a one-time event. Most people don't walk back and forth like through the, the doorway. You open a doorway to go on a path. A, opening a door is a one-time event, but walking on a path is an ongoing practice requiring an ongoing decision. It's a long patient quest, one foot in front of the other. Or to put it another way, it's the wax on, wax off of life. And if you didn't just get that reference, shame on you. You need to watch the 1980s classic, The Karate Kid, where a young man who wants to learn karate, as the title would suggest, 
is told by his mentor to wax his car repeatedly using familiar circular motions, one with his right hand and the other with his left. Frustrated, the young man of this routine, it seems meaningless to him because it has nothing to do with fighting. It seems to have nothing to do with karate until he realizes that the constant pattern of his arm movement involved in his chores actually trained his muscles and his memory with instincts to fight. The truth is this. There is no formation without repetition. There's no formation without repetition. Becoming wise is so much about repetition. We're going to go to the Word of God. We're going to go again. We're going to put it into practice. We're going to put it into practice again. We're going to If we forget about it, we then go back to it. We need community to remind us of it and how to apply it. There's no formation without repetition. Which I think is an important word for many of us because there are those who want the event but not the path. They want to get excited at church, but then they don't want to like put in the effort after church. They want the inspiration, but not the formation. They want the excitement, but not the discipline. They want the experience, but not the wisdom. And I do believe that there's this consumer culture that has crept into the church that promotes event over formation. But rather, events, like this is an event. There's people here, your kids are being taught. Awesome. But you're not meant to leave from this, okay, job done, check, done. You're to take what you've learned. You're to remember it, remind one another of it, and put it into practice. Just attending on a Sunday on its own will not make you mature. We need to embrace wise practices. And as you do, it shapes your character. And it evokes favor. That's how that section ends. It gets favor with God and with man. Now, what does that mean? Oftentimes, the word favor in the Bible is used to denote acceptance. Quite often, that's how it's used. If you have the favor of God, you are accepted by God. It gives you entrance to God. That's often how we use the phrase, the favor of God, that you are accepted by him. But there's other ways in which the word favor is used. And one of the examples is here in Proverbs chapter 3. The idea here of getting favor with God means simply this. God looks at what you're doing and he says, that's good. Other people look at how you're living and they say, oh, that's good. That's what it means to evoke favor in this context in Proverbs 3. It's not talking about acceptance with God. We have that through the gospel of grace through Jesus Christ. What it's talking about here is that as you are seeking to live this out, you're you're in community, you're remembering the word of God, you're putting it into practice. God in all of heaven is like, that's good. That's good. It's like when I I watch an an athlete that, that I like and they do this like great move. I just say out loud as an observer, I'm like, oh, that's good. I even say it out loud during games, much to the embarrassment and chagrin of my children. Oh, that's good. The idea is God is saying yes. He's like cheering you on. That's good. They got involved in community. That's good. They're reading scripture. That's so good. They're putting it into practice. That's good. And the world around you says, oh, that's good. I remember when I was a, 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 a new Christian, I, I can't remember how long I'd been a Christian for, but I, I got a job and I was, I was working with all these people. None of them were, were Christians, but I was like obsessed with the book of Proverbs. And I, I was a young man at the time. I didn't know a lot, still a new Christian, still learning how to read my Bible, but I was digging Proverbs. I was into it. And as I was there peeling potatoes, it was In-N-Out Burger, by the way. <laughs> As I was peeling potato, I was like, I was like quoting Proverbs and everyone around me in and out was like, that's wise. And I was like, well, look under your drink cup because the word of God is there, people. <laughs> this wisdom doesn't come from, I get a few amens, it's hilarious. I know where you're going for lunch. I was like, this, it will make you wise. Like other people go, oh, wow, that makes sense. You know, Proverbs says, 
You know, Proverbs says, everyone's like, you're wise. I'm like, I'm, I'm a fool. I'm just quoting the word of God. <laughs> Embracing these, remembering the word of God, putting it into practice, it shapes your character and it evokes favor with God. God says, that's good. People around say, that's good. It's a word used to recognize the quality of something. But as we think about all these things, these responsibilities, these practices, many of us can feel a little heavy and just think, well, what's the key to all of this? Because if you're like me, you feel like a fool and you feel like a failure at times. Well, that's why this fourth point is absolutely essential to everything. If you want to become wise, you need to trust your wise God. That's how it happens. That is the key. Ultimately, if you want to become wise, it's about how you relate to God. It's not just enough to believe that he exists. It's about your relationship with him. And so it says in verse 5 and 6, after all this practical wisdom, it then says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. What does that mean for us? What does it mean to trust the Lord? Well, there are at least three things that I want to say to us. Three things at the very least that this means. First, it means to make the Lord the center of your life. That is, you put him at the center of your decision-making. To trust in the Lord with all your heart means that he is your focus. Because the heart in Proverbs in the Bible is about your affections. It's the seat of your affections. It means that we put his desires at the center of our decision-making. For example, I, I'm, a, a, I'm a husband and I'm a, a parent. And so when I make decisions, I can't make decisions with just me at the center. There are other factors that I need to make decisions with regard to. It would be weird if I booked a holiday for Hawaii this week and my wife looks over and she's like, oh, you booked one ticket. I'm like, yeah, I'm going to Hawaii. That would be weird, strange. And some of you would have to come and confront me on that as Proverbs would say. And the first would be my wife. I make decisions. Like if we're going somewhere, it's as a family because I am a husband and I am a parent. We do this all the time. We make decisions with something important to us at the center. That's the idea here. To trust in the Lord with all of our heart is to say, God, what do you want for me? Okay, here's this job offer, or here's this decision, or here's this potential relationship, or here's this school opportunity, whatever it might be. God, what do you want? I want to put that at the center. At the very least, this means make him the center of your life. Secondly, it also means place him in charge of your life. So it goes a little further. If he's at the center of your decision-making, then his word should govern your decision-making. And that's why it says, lean not on your own understanding. This does not mean that you don't have any responsibility anymore. You're like, I'm just going to sit on the sofa and lean not on my own understanding and do nothing. No, Proverbs has a lot to say about laziness. We'll get there. It means that you rely on God's word as your authority. In contrast, to lean on your own understanding is to live as if you knew better than God. As if you were the authority and not God. So the question here is, what's the governing authority in my life? Or let me give you a, a test. Here's how you can know whether you're leaning on your own understanding or on God's understanding. When you read the Bible and you come to a section that you don't like or you disagree with, who wins? That's the simplest way to put it. Whoever wins shows what you're leaning on for your understanding. And it could be a variety of areas. You come to a passage that says, be radically generous with your money. And you're like, ooh, of my eight highlighters, I am not highlighting that one. Like, surely it doesn't really mean radical generosity, like whatever, just moving on. You're like, no, I think I'm going to govern that. Or it comes to a passage on the Christian sex ethic, and you're like, oh, I don't really like that, so I'm going to skip over that to the next thing. Or it could be on community and relationships. You're like, oh, I don't really like that, and so you get tie-breaking authority. 
The test to know of where you're truly leaning is when the Bible disagrees with you, who wins? And in those moments, it can be challenging. You're like, God, I, I'm afraid of this, or I don't know what's happened. Like, ah, oh, just being generous or living with integrity or living in purity or whatever, but your ways are higher than my ways. You are my creator. You are my, are my Lord. And so I'm placing you in charge of my life. The opposite is in verse 7. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. And that word trust means to actually lie face down. What a picture. A person who trusts in the Lord with all their heart and is not leaning on their own understanding, that trust is like, God, I'm just, it's almost as if I'm lying face down. I'm saying, it's all yours. I'm awaiting for your guidance. I'm waiting your call. I'm waiting for your direction. Is that the posture of our hearts? Make him the center of your life. Give him charge over every part of your life. And third, allow him into every area of your life. Notice that passage says, in all your ways, acknowledge him. Some of us, we put a little asterisk. We're like, in some of our ways, acknowledge him. But that's not what it says. We've often used the example of if your heart was a home, would God have access into every room in the house? There is a danger when we compartmentalize and we pick and choose what we allow God to see as if it could be hidden or where we allow God to reign as if he could be shut out. Allow him into every area of your life. But you might say, I know that's about trust and I've got trust issues. I need to know God's intentions. Great question. His intentions are clear. Look at verse eight. It's for your good. This will bring health to your body and nourishment to your bones. God's like, I love you. I'm for you, not against you. I created you. I'm the only perfect being in the universe. Trust me. Don't project bad experiences of untrustworthy people onto an everlasting and trustworthy God. A right relationship with God not only leads to the absence of brokenness, but the presence of wholeness. And the way to experiencing that, the way to become wise, is ultimately about surrender. That's what this passage is about. It's about surrender. If God is indeed God, then the wisest decision you can make is to surrender to him. And by his grace and by his spirit, we are enabled to live it. And for all that we've forgotten to do, all the ways in which we have been foolish, the truth we've not remembered or kept, we remember why we can be in a relationship with God in the first place, and that is through Jesus Christ, because he's the fulfillment. He is the ultimate source of wisdom. He is the faithful son of God whose perfect love and faithfulness wins us ultimate favor with God and who writes his word on our hearts. And when Jesus died, he experienced the crookedness of our foolish ways so that our paths might be made straight, so that our hearts would be cleansed, so that we could be changed and transformed from the inside out. He took his love for you out into public when he died on the cross through 2,000 years ago. He bound you to his heart and he laid down his life for you. So will you open up your heart to him today? And will you take your love for him out in to public? Friends, this is all based on what he has done for you. And when it comes to God, surrender is where we find the most freedom. And if you ever questioned his intentions, Look at the cross of Jesus Christ. He says, I loved you so much that I was willing to die so that you could be forgiven of a debt you could never pay and have eternal life that you never could deserve as a free gift. If you ever doubt his intentions, you remember what he's done. And the response is surrender. This surrender is not a one-time event as we now enter into worship. But to use a very powerful picture Surrender is more like a train running on an electric rail than a car getting topped up at a gas station. See, many of us, we view surrender like it's our car going to the gas station. We fill up and then we drive away for like a couple days until we run out and we come back. And we're like, oh, Lord Jesus, need a little top up. It's actually like the train running on the third rail. 
That train has no power unless it's constantly connected to that source of power. Friends, that is where we need to be, a place of surrender. And that's why William Booth said, who was the founder of the Salvation Army famously, the greatness of a man's power is the measure of his surrender. And what we're inviting you to do even now is to surrender to him and allow him to lead you, guide you, change you, heal you, and by his grace, make you wise. Will you do that? Let's pray now that we would. Father, we do ask right now that your Holy Spirit would reveal areas where we are leaning on our own understanding, areas where we're not acknowledging you, knowing that you point these things out not to condemn us, but to heal us and to help us. I pray that guilt, shame, and fear would not keep us from surrendering to you, our wise, loving, good, perfect God. Pray that right now we would remember the gospel, all that you've done for us to forgive us of our foolishness and to make us wise and to bring us in relationship with you forever. I pray now for anyone here who does not yet know you and has not yet made that decision to trust in Jesus as Savior. I pray that right now they would trust, right now that they would say from their seat or whether they're watching online at home, that they would simply say from their heart, Jesus, save me. Forgive me of my sins. Give me new life. That you died and rose to give. I pray that they would not waste another moment without making that decision and experience your salvation. And Spirit, would you move in us even now as we seek to acknowledge you in all of our ways. We want to let you in. We want to surrender. Grant us the grace to do that now. In Jesus' name, amen.